Welcome back to New Rockstars, I'm Eric Voss, and this is a breakdown for The Mandalorian Chapter 4, titled Sanctuary, an episode that restores ATSTs from the chickens on roller skates that they sometimes looked like in Return of the Jedi to the evil red-eyed monsters. We would probably see them as if they walked into our krill farms. Let's review all the influences, Star Wars Easter eggs, and unresolved theories, and interesting visual details that you might have missed in this episode. And thanks to Privacy.com for sponsoring this episode. If you sign up now at Privacy.com slash New Rockstars, you'll get $5 today to use on any purchase online for Three. Spoiler warning, here we go. We begin on the planet Sorgan with a community of krill farmers. The opening shot shows these krills swimming peacefully in a pond. Now notice that the farmers wear blue, inspired by the krill's blue color, linking the two. Like the blissful krill before the reaping, these farmers also simply just want to live kind of underwater, away from the conflict. Indeed, the widow and her daughter avoid that conflict by literally hiding underwater with these krill. And it foreshadows how these farmers will score their victory later on by tricking the walker into stepping into this puddle and stumbling. The farmers have a harvesting droid, evoking that whole mix of futurism and pastoral imagery that George Lucas showed in the first Star Wars with the moisture evaporators on Uncle Owen's farm. The raiders that attack them are Clotunians, who first showed up in Return of the Jedi and have since shown up in many other installments. Mando and Baby Yoda arrive here, seeking a remote planet as a sanctuary. Mando calls Yoda a womp rat, referring to the creatures that Luke Skywalker used to blast in Beggar's Canyon on Tatooine. It's not impossible. I used to bullseye womp rats in my T-16 back home, they're not much bigger than two meters. They head into a nearby tavern where they see a loath cat, which first appeared in Star Wars Rebels. There's also a Twi'lek woman sitting around there. Mando clocks another warrior, Cara Dune, played by Gina Carano. She is a former rebel shock trooper whom the rebels would use to keep the peace as the Empire collapsed. She mentions the Battle of Endor from Return of the Jedi, and she has a subtle rebel tattoo on her cheek if you look closely. She refers to the Imperials as imps, possibly a nod to the Star Wars fan film Imps of Relentless. Fearing Mando is a bounty hunter sent after her, Kara heads outside. Mando follows her footsteps using a kind of heat vision screen, which looks a lot like the kind of point of view shots we saw in the movie Predator. And then they duke it out with some solid fight choreography. It helps when your performer actually knows how to fight. It ends with a nod to an also well choreographed stunt film, The Matrix. Mando and Kara lay on the ground with guns pointed to each other's heads, just like Neo and Agent Smith did. You're empty, so are you. There's an interesting detail slash VFX gaff here. When Mando tries torching Kara with his wrist flamethrower, the nearby ground appears charred and burnt. Cool effect. But then when it cuts back to this angle, the ground is no longer burnt. No. I'll point this out because if you look hard enough, you can find these kind of gaffs all over every movie and TV show, even the best of them. Later this episode, there's also a boom microphone that lowers down in the shot by mistake. And most of the time, the editors on these things are totally aware of these, but they simply just don't have enough coverage or additional takes or time to be able to fix them. Filmmaking really is an art of doing the best with what you got. It's why many of us will take George Lucas's imperfect editing and the original theatrical release of Star Wars over his attempts in later years to fix each imperfection with weird CGI and audio dubs. And cue the McClunky soundboard. McClunky. <laughs> There it is. Mando is approached by two of the Krill farmers, one of them played by Eugene Cordero, AKA Pillboy from The Good Place and one of the many comedian cameos in this show. And they beg him to protect their village from the raiders and teach them how to fight. This is a classic premise from Westerns and Samurai films, most famously from Akira Kurosawa's The Seven Samurai, which was adapted into a ton of other films that you may have seen. The Magnificent Seven, both the original and the remake, A Bug's Life. Kurosawa was one of George Lucas's biggest influences on the early Star Wars films. So it's cool to see The Mandalorian go full circle with that. There was also an episode of The Clone Wars with a similar 
similar plot, season 2, episode 17, Bounty Hunters, in which farmers contract bounty hunters to help them fend off pirates. In the village, the widow asks about Mando's armor, and he clarifies that he does take off this helmet sometimes, just not in front of other people. And if he did, he could never put it back on. Mando's armor is a not-so-subtle reflection of his emotional armor. By wearing this armor, he can mask his vulnerabilities and avoid interpersonal distractions. We nerds do the same thing by cosplaying at cons, and then only taking off our masks when we're alone back in our hotel rooms. We choose this life. This is the way. Other Mandalorian characters we've seen from other Star Wars installments, people like Sabine, Bo-Katan, Pre Vizsla, Fen Rao, they're often seen without helmets, but perhaps Mando's clan in this show is a more extremist sect? Or maybe they just begin committing to harsher rules as a survival tactic after the Great Purge. It's interesting how he tells the Widow that the Mandalorians took him in after his parents were killed. Makes it sound as though he was not a Mandalorian by blood, he was an orphan adopted by this tribe. That might help explain how the other Mandalorians showed antagonism toward him, and why it was such a big deal that they came to his aid. Before I continue, thank you to Privacy.com for sponsoring this episode. Privacy.com is a free service where you use digital burner cards when you shop online so you don't have to use your real credit card info. That keeps you protected in case you have to go through a shady vendor, vendor, or an all-powerful content subscription that relies on you forgetting you subscribe to them so that they can squeeze another month out of you. Privacy cards allow you to control the limits on them so you can avoid handing over the keys to your finances every time you spend money online. So for example, I've set up my account with Privacy, linked my bank account, and then I created this card specifically for my monthly Netflix subscription payment. For this virtual card, I'm setting the limit just above my monthly subscription amount. So, you know, when I move on with my life and I inevitably forget what I subscribe to, happens all the time, they cannot ding me for a second month. No vendor can overcharge beyond the limit you've set. Privacy will notify you that they blocked it because the spending limit was already reached. See, it's simple, it's fast, it's really just one click. They're also starting to offer different plans. There's a free tier that lets you create up to 12 cards a month, but also there's a new pro plan where you can get 36 cards a month and 1% cash back on your purchases. And then there's also a Teams plan that's great for small businesses. Just head to privacy.com slash new rockstars to sign up for an account. As a special treat for my viewers, new customers will automatically get $5 to spend on your first purchase for limited time only. Yep, that's free money, folks. Just go to privacy.com slash new rockstars to sign up now. Okay, after spotting tracks made by an ATST, Mando and Kara suggest leaving, but when the farmers refuse, they end up agreeing to train them. And among all the farmers, the best shot is the widow. So what is this woman's story? Is this just another example of the kind of Nancy Wheeler perfect aim trope? Or could this woman have been a former rebel or imperial soldier? now just trying to settle down in a simpler life. Let me know what you think this woman's story is in the comments below. Mando and Kara attack the raiders camp to try to lure out the ATST, and when it rises, this thing is freaking terrifying. The production designers illuminated the cockpit with red light to make the illusion of glowing red eyes, giving it an animalistic quality. This episode was directed by Bryce Dallas Howard, actress and daughter of Solo Star Wars story director Ron Howard, but Bryce Dallas Howard seems to be drawing more on the visuals from the movies she was in the Jurassic Park films. The way the ATST stomps in from the distance and it sways from side to side and it bends the trees as it looms into view the way they look down at the track as if it was a t-rex track yeah this threat is definitely more organic than industrial like the t-rex in jurassic park it is an unholy union of nature and tech it's also worth noting that jurassic park is a story about cloning and genetic engineering. Keep that in mind for later. In Empire Strikes Back, the production designers base the walkers on the tripods from H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. And this imagery restores that sense of terror that we were always meant to feel when we look up at these things. Now, the fact that this ATST is being operated by Clotunian raiders shows us just how scary this world now is that the Empire has collapsed and the Imperial technology has fallen into the wrong hands. I guess it was always in the wrong hands. But, like, uninformed hands. This could shed light on what's going on with Werner Herzog's character and Dr. Pershing. Could they be using a very 
valuable technology from the Empire's early days, cloning for a similar evil purpose. Watch last week's episode for my theory on what they could be doing with Baby Yoda. So they bring down the ATST and peace settles in the village. Baby Yoda spits out a frog when the kids are grossed out. It's a little detail that shows him learning a bit of humanity just by seeing raw human reactions. For he gobbled down a whole frog in front of Mando like it was nothing. Maybe because Mando's helmet masked reaction. So Baby Yoda doesn't just need protection, it needs a human connection in order to grow. But another one of Grief Targets bounty hunters tracks him down, holding a fob with a menacing blinking red light. To me, this light evokes the tracker that the bounty hunter Anton Chigurh used in No Country for Old Men. Just something about that blinking red light. Terrifying. So they depart once more, and when the girl hugs Baby Yoda goodbye, notice how it releases this adorable coo. I miss you so much. Along with the baby sounds, I just love how much expression the Baby Yoda puppeteers are getting from its ears. This is why, if you want real E.T. farewell style emotion from non-human characters, you always go practical. Follow me on socials at EA Voss and subscribe to New Rockstar Star Wars Podcast WikiLeaks for more of these breakdowns in audio form. Thanks for watching. Bye.